It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, Carrie here. Back again. (laughs) This episode was recorded back in January, and we held off on it because everyone was reporting on Prince Harry's spare book. Larissa actually got through the entire thing. So we held off and then tried to think of a different angle on it. The following, we talk about Prince Harry's admission of how many people he killed in Afghanistan. The opening clip I thought was interesting. It came from a radio show called Wake Up Wisconsin. Hopefully I didn't say that too bad with my lisp. And a caller who served explains about the invasions from foreign forces. So it's a little bit off track, but I think it gives some context overall, I think, about kind of the overall, I guess, environment, you'd say, over there. The second and third clips are actually from the Ministry of Defense and the Royal Marines, so it comes straight from the UK. And interestingly enough, there's a video made by the Ministry of Defense in 2013 that you can actually see Harry doing some of his job in the military. And this wasn't, he wasn't used to be broadcasted and get the recruiting numbers up. It just, I guess he was just working that day and they're like, hey, we need you to go to flight planning or we need you to, you know, get the, get the boys some drinks. So he was just a regular extra in the background. And then the second clip is a journalist. I think he's a journalist. It seems like the comments I read on it that people actually know who he is over in the UK, who's embedded with the Royal Marines. And they have a bunch of these episodes out there and it shows what it's like on the ground. So I hopefully gives you a little bit of a twist here in the context of Harry's military service. And yeah, so that's it. Someone stop me. I think maybe we should do this every day. We've been talking, obviously, about Afghanistan. And I'm trying to be as careful as I can because there's so many things I don't know because I wasn't there. And I hate having to rely on reporters to give us what's actually going on. So this gentleman that I'm about to talk to called Miss Mary, who wanted to talk about what was going on there. He was there. Mr. Tony Vander Ark, thank you for calling in this morning. I appreciate this because I've been probably just sounding like a complete idiot. No, Glenn, you, you're okay. I think you probably know about what everybody else knows right now. Okay. Um, so I was part of Task Force Phoenix 7. Um, I was in the New York Army National Guard at the time. And I was part of the 27th Brigade Combat Team, HHT, which is Headquarters, Headquarters Troop, 2101 Cavalry. And I was stationed at Camp Phoenix, which is in the eastern part of Kabul. I could see a Kabul International Airport, or at least see the planes taken off from Camp Phoenix. People are talking about the collapse of the Afghan National Army. Which I have to ask, I think what we have to understand about Afghanistan is... In the United States, we have a sense of country. I mean, I believe in American exceptionalism. I believe this is a special place. And people that don't agree with me at least have a vision for the country. I I know where it is. This is what I want it to be. But people have a vision. In Afghanistan, they've been invaded all the way back to Alexander the Great, most recently by the British, the Soviets, and now the United States. So they have no sense of national identity. Plus the fact that they were the third poorest country and the first most densely landmined per square mile. They have no sense of identity. And if you don't have that, and most people there live below the poverty line, you're just trying to survive from day to day. Higher order thinking, like 
a sense of nationhood and country really isn't theirs. So to expect them to fight to the death for something they've really never had is kind of a bit much to ask. And I, and I don't want to undermine that because we worked very hard. I was part of the mentoring team for the Kabul garrison of the Afghan National Army that was there to defend Kabul if the Taliban did what they're doing right now. I think every president back to George W., none of them wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan um, or be that president. Kabul fell the way that it did because I believe we should have had a status forces agreement, much the same way we did in Germany, Japan, in Iraq, where, and I think we should have held uh, Bagram and Kandahar and a garrison in Kabul. I think that, that that would have led to an orderly withdrawal, at least as long to protect, you know, we had air supremacy. Not superiority, we had air supremacy in Afghanistan. And the Taliban could not move large formations. They just couldn't do it. And when we gave Kandahar and Bagram back, that went away. And all of a sudden, the Taliban was able to move large formations and take over provinces one by one. That, I think, has a lot to do with the recent history of what happened, the rapid collapse. I think we could have prevented that. But again, that's my opinion. Okay. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, when I was there, we mentored the Afghan National Army garrison. We were doing humanitarian aid missions. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we did. We we went to war and we killed people, but we also did a lot of humanitarian missions. Right. Um, what people don't understand, we were not like the Soviets. The Soviets were brutal. And um, I'm not going to say that we were a benevolent invading force, but we did as much for, as possible to build that country. We're doing humanitarian aid. Uh, missions we established we helped them establish a constitution and build a government sounds to me and and from what i've watched over the years uh, of any branch of military in afghanistan that we spend a lot of time trying to foster a relationship with the people of afghanistan and i wonder did we leave the majority of the people of afghanistan with a better impression of america than when we first went in i think that our culture was pervasive um one of the biggest things that happened there is uh, there was actually, a, it, they were living in the 7th century. I mean, literally, how, you know, we got there for the most part. I mean, technologically, um, they're a very clan-oriented society. But you talk about American culture, there was a pilot, a female pilot, that actually did a tour in and around Afghanistan. And that was huge. That was so big, it, it was incredible. And, and girls were actually, she would do tours to girls' schools and talk to people just to get people used to the idea of females in combat positions or doing, you know, doing, doing working in Afghanistan, Afghani uh, society. I mean, that's a cultural thing. We influenced their culture. I mean, it would be impossible to say that we didn't. Um, you know, it was one of those things where American soldiers, just through sheer interaction, we kind of, you know, and I'm not saying anything about cultural superiority. People, Some people may take offense to that, but we did. Our culture... You know, especially on the level of, uh, you know, human rights, I think, you know, it became, was pervasive and was part of that. Welcome to Misdeeds and Intrigue. I want to let you know that I bought a Kevlar helmet and a flak jacket. Um, I, I bought it so I'm prepared for all the bombs that Harry is dropping. You know, the information bombs. I think it's so overwhelming. And so much information is coming in. And the book hasn't even technically hit Great Britain yet, even though Amazon Tomorrow, accidentally right? sent books out. Yeah. Or tonight at midnight, I think, because it's okay. January 10th. But 
I just feel like this is going to be an ongoing story and psychological in an analysis it, I, it I, has I, to there's be. so much you can't even sum up in one episode well well that's the point as a producer I would not want it to be summed up in one episode I would say you know you need to keep your trash for several episodes you need to keep your bombshells to spread out over several episodes otherwise you don't get a paycheck my yeah. humble opinion <laughs> as we're going on air he's talking about how of course, Megan didn't Google us. She thought Prince Andrew was was the Queen's PA because he held her purse. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, oh, I can't. I just can't. You. She, is, she missed her Oscar. She missed her Oscar. Like, I really did not realize what a great actress she is. She is. You know, I never watched Suits enough to really realize what an incredible actress she is. But she is. And she will get her Oscar one day. I hope every director is out there watching. No, I just, I, there's so many things that I want to talk about. So many bombshells he dropped. There are things that we just don't need to know about. Like if his penis is circumcised or not, why is that in the, why is that of any meaning in the book? Why? I know. 99.99% of the population doesn't even want to know that. Why is it in there? Think that this book really smacks of, Somebody who has been protected for a very long time by the press mm-hmm. and by the palace, various, you know, even during the military, he could leave, even though at first I was really like, he was treated like everybody else, but he was allowed to leave when they were doing drug testing, which even in America, that was like a huge no-no. Mm-hmm. And I think now, where that- did you, Where did you read that? Where did that information come out? That oh, that's allowed to leave. UK Daily Bible. <laughs> but but some of the some of the people that served with him were coming out and they are commanders and everything are slamming him. One of the claims made by Prince Harry in his book is that he killed 25 Taliban fighters while he served in Afghanistan, but also claimed that he saw them not as people, but as chess pieces instead. Well, joining me now to discuss this further is retired British Army officer Colonel Richard Kemp, who commanded the British forces in Afghanistan in 2003. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us, uh, Colonel Kemp. Uh, so in uh, Prince Harry's memoir, he talks about his time in Afghanistan and says uh, that he killed 25 Taliban fighters. Um, as former commander of British forces in Afghanistan, how do you feel about those comments? I think they're probably ill-judged, partly for two reasons, really. One is uh, his suggestion that he killed 25 will have re- re-incited, I think, those people who wish him harm as a result of his military service. That was 10 years ago now, and the memories might have faded. Well, now they've been resurrected, and there will be people out there who maybe support the Taliban, uh, support their agenda, who who will now be motivated, I think, to, to, to kill Harry. Well, let's hope they don't succeed, and I'm sure he's got pretty good security, but that's one problem. The other problem I found with his comments was that he characterised the British Army basically as having trained him and other soldiers to see his enemy as less than human, just as chess pieces on a board to be swiped off, which is not the case. It's the opposite of the case. Um, the British Army is very careful to ensure that its soldiers are trained to respect their enemy, particularly if they're if they're uh, if they're killed and they their bodies need to be treated with respect. And if they're wounded, then they have to be given medical treatment. And if they are um, taken prisoner, they have to be treated according to Geneva Convention. So it's not the way he describes it. I think that's a very bad judgment. 
Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've served in our armed forces, you still are. Um, isn't it a big no-no to tell how many people you've killed in wartime action? I mean, I, I thought that was very interesting that he would go on the record saying that I killed 25 Taliban. I don't think that, is that a bad thing to do when you're in the armed forces? Yeah, he just made himself even more of a target if he's so concerned about safety. He made himself a huge target. Even there was a recently, I was watching one that was a colonel in the British army. I think he was army. And he said he would never disclose. And that a lot of times when you're up in the air, there's dust and everything. So you can't even really count. And so mm -hmm. No, exactly. I'm Ash. I'm an Apache helicopter pilot of uh, 662 Squadron, 3 Regiment Army Air Corps, currently serving on 24-hour operations in Afghanistan. Okay, we cover four duties while we're out in Afghanistan. Uh, they are VHR day, VHR night, we have uh, duty crew and tasking. So the VHR is very high readiness, where we can be called out to anything from casualty evacuations to troops in contact uh, to supporting high-value targets. Come in to take over on VHR, and we'll come in some period of time before uh, we're due to take over. We'll carry out a brief as a flight where we'll get the latest intelligence, operations being carried out that day in the area, uh, and then we'll also discuss our standard operating procedures as a flight. We'll then move to the aircraft with the offcoming VHR crew. Uh, we'll do a period of swapping the kit over in the aircraft, uh, and then myself and my other pilot will then walk around the aircraft to ensure that it's serviceable to fly for that day. Uh, once that's complete, we'll then come back to the tent where we're basically on 15 minutes notice to move by day, 30 minutes notice to move by night. Uh, we have a telephone inside, uh, so we'll just basically sit inside that tent waiting for the phone call. Uh, so we have long periods of not a lot happening, followed by really short bursts of excitement of running to the aircraft, knowing that you're going out to assist someone and to provide a service to someone out on the ground that requires your help at that time. And it's quite a... Uh, it's quite a satisfying feeling knowing that you're providing that for someone. Tasking, uh, we carry out pre-planned operations throughout the area which are side by side with the ground forces um, as well as the other helicopters in the Joint Aviation Group in Afghanistan. So we'll go out with Chinooks uh, to carry out infill of troops into areas and exfill of troops uh, and then we'll carry out the overwatch of the troops while they're on the ground as well during their operations. So duty crew is a period where we work directly with our uh, REMI engineers. We also work with the ground crew during the uh, duty crew period and throughout our period actually out here they work very closely with us uh, so they carry out all our gun uh, and missile rocket uploads, uh, downloads, they carry out the refueling on the helicopters and they also move the aircraft around the job we're doing out here in Afghanistan has a really good effect. Um, it gives the guys on the ground that warm, fuzzy feeling that they can carry out their job, knowing that if anything goes wrong, we're there to support them. It's a really good feeling to know that you're doing something out here that is helping the people out there doing the job on the ground. By the way, if that is obviously he was in wartime action, he should, he's got a ton of P PTSD. Even with his mother dying, a lot of PTSD, and I don't see much treatment being sought out no no and he said that his brother told him years ago to go to therapy so obviously they saw signs in the family if he's been having therapy for years like he said and he was able to call a therapist when you know william roughed him up 
No. And the other thing that, you know, he says, I'm hoping this will repair my relationship with my family. How does he feel that this, these actions of really just taking everyone to the mat will repair his relationship? Like he talks about William's physical appearance, Mm -hmm. have siblings. We could all pile on each other about our flaws. How is this helping? He said he, he wrote that to help defend his wife. How does it help defend your wife by saying William has lost his hair? He's got a eternal grimace. I'm not sure how just really taking these side digs. I I really feel the anger that has built up in him. And immaturity. A child. Yes. I think immaturity. I think people tiptoed around him and didn't tell him direct things and they covered for him. I have one of these in my direct family. I have a Prince Harry in my direct family. Oh, my God. <laughs> After 10 years, the war in Afghanistan is changing. The Taliban are on the back foot. These Royal Marine commandos are pushing deep into enemy territory, seeking out the insurgents who, though on the retreat, remain a deadly force. The Marines know they could be hit at any time ambushed by gunmen or suicide bombers, indistinguishable from a local body. But the insurgents' main method of attack is now as surreptitious as it's deadly. The improvised explosive device, the IED. Out here, every footfall could invite death or serious injury. Every patrol is a dice with death. It's bandit country out here. The way you think about it is... Say you're in a car going down the road. There's five of you in the car. Yeah, you got your driver, your passenger, and your three, and, and the three guys in the back. One's going to die. One's going to lose his legs, and the other three are going to be slightly injured. But you don't know which order is going to come in. That's what it's like when you go out. It's just literally not if, but when. Getting close to guys that you're working with who are next to you, and the next thing you know, the next week they're not here. It's just the worst feeling in the world. Whilst facing the threat of guerrilla warfare the Marines must also win the hearts and minds of the local population. They must assure them of security and a future beyond war, beyond the bombs and bullets. I join 4-2 Commando of the Royal Marines to tell the extraordinary story of how they moved into a small but vital area of Helmand province and tried to wrestle it from Taliban control and give it back to the people. Nad Ali North, for years a Taliban heartland. Royal Marine Commandos have been fighting through the area, clearing insurgents out of their former strongholds. Like this village of Loimanda, once prosperous, but now derelict, deserted and riddled with IEDs. The plan is to get the village on its feet again, but first the Royal Engineers must clear it of the IEDs. The Taliban will do all they can to disrupt this work so they must not be given the chance to counterattack. They have to be kept out of the village at all costs. And that's the next job for the Royal Marines. They are being sent to man outposts on the fringe of Loimanda village to pin down the enemy and keep them at bay. So, Eddie, what are you up to? Uh, Loimanda, south of uh, the village, just to go down and soak up some, uh, some of the enemy in front. Disrupt and destroy to uh, relieve the pressure of the village so that work can go on in there with no hindrance, basically. Two Chinooks are taking these men of L Company to the most dangerous of these outposts, a place called Toki, 
They are to relieve their comrades of J Company, who've been under heavy fire. What was happening down there? Is it a bit quite kinetic? Uh, Company we've had quite a few injuries, uh, unfortunately, of the facilities. Just going down there, securing it, just defeating Taliban, basically, yeah. As far as you know, quite a lot of enemy down there. Uh, yeah, quite a few. Yeah, it's been quite busy. Uh, so hopefully uh, we get amongst it, yeah. Well, take care of yourself. We'll see you down there. Yeah, OK, cheers. Just two months into a six-month tour, Old Company has already lost one man to an IED and suffered five injuries. So right now, as they head back into mortal danger, they'll be feeling a mixture of fear and excitement. At least, that's what I feel. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Let's play a game, all right? On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it, just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out Miss deeds and intrigue podcast.com but we don't have a complaints department just to give you a little heads up the podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast the information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinion of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue Podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.